Welcome to the arena. That's what spaces of worship need to be understood as. This is an arena because worship is the battleground against spiritual warfare. And it is a place where we practice embodying the gospel so that we take the light into the darkness. This is why this is an arena. This is a gymnasium. This is a place for working out what Christ is calling us to be. And it shouldn't be less. And it definitely shouldn't be anything other. Psalm 18 is a psalm where David's delivered from God. And he describes in Psalm 18, uh, he describes that God trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. That takes strength. And God, David says, he trains me. Psalm 18 is a wonderful psalm about spiritual battle. James K.A. Smith, um, he's written a book called You Are What You Love, and I highly recommend you read it. Although it's a bit on the philosophical side, but it's, here's what he says, and I, I really agree with this. He says that worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts. Because they go like this. Worship is where he recalibrates our hearts. He reforms our desires. And he rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship. Because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. The demons seek to distort the gospel that we live out. And they're good at it. They also seek to get in the way of our union with Christ. By causing us to spend the week communing with other things. Um, one of the reasons we worship is because our worship resists their works. It helps us to get reoriented, and then it tells them, like, look, we give ourselves to Christ, and while we worship, they tremble. There's no place for them. This is one of the reasons that Moses prayed, Arise, O Lord, let your foes be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. Every time the ark was lifted and the people of Israel moved forward in the wilderness, that was Moses' prayer. Because the ark led the people into battle. The ark found the resting place, and the people then came around the ark. Psalm 68, as you know now, because it was it's one of the longer psalms, isn't it? Um, and you had that repeated throughout there. Let God arise, let his foes be scattered, let those who hate him flee from his presence. That's what happens in worship. Now, we need places of worship like this, not just private places, but public places. Because we are experiencing and drawn into public places of worship throughout the week rival temples, rival sanctuaries. We miss them because they don't advertise themselves as places of worship. But here's the truth. If anything is luring our hearts and shaping our desires for a kingdom, a good life that is not the kingdom of God, you are in an act of worship. You're being taught by habits and rituals how to love something else. This happens so well in a capitalistic society. Marketers have mastered the art of getting you to long for what they produce. We see, these are the sanctuaries we can identify in our culture. Theaters, 
whether they be Broadway or movie theaters, there are certain rituals and there are certain things you do and experience and things that happen there that draw your yearnings for something else. Capitals. Capitals where laws are made and people are elevated. Um, Universities. Universities have deep rhythms that shape the minds of people. Stadiums. Stadiums are places of sanctuaries where people... Uh, they wear the color themes. They sing their creeds called the anthem. They um, have all kinds of rituals that they do, calls and responses and different chants and songs, right? And stadiums are full of worship-type habits. Malls are full of worship-type habits. Actually, malls, uh, James Smith in his book goes through um, in great detail on how malls are literally laid out like ancient temples. And there's icons everywhere. There's little chapels on the side that you can go visit. There are saints, stained glass saints. They're called models and posters. And and all of this is designed, and the vaulted ceilings. Uh, all of this is designed to bring the person into the mall to worship the products, to desire this as the good life. This is what we're up against in life. And whether you go to these physical spaces or not, we're all participating through them virtually. And this does not mean because you watch a film that you're a worshiper. This means we have to beware that we are being seduced into other temples throughout our lives. And to understand that and to see Christian worship as the rehabilitations of our hearts, this is what we need to be aware of. This is spiritual warfare, and we have to identify it. So without an arena to conduct the warfare of worship and to train ourselves in the gospel... We will love their gods more than Christ. And that's a sobering thought. Now, most Christians will say they love Christ above all things. But if you watched their lives, you'd question their declaration. You would say, but your life, the way you orient it seems to love food more or money more or career or recreational sports more. This is why we need the arena. Now, I want to ask you a couple questions, and then I'm going to introduce two words that are both very uncomfortable, one slightly and one very. (laughs) Question number one, have you ever asked, what did I get out of church today? Or what did you get out of church today? Oh, yeah. What did you get out of the sermon today? Something like that. Have you ever gone to church seeking a Jesus fix? I'm just feeling down. I just need a Jesus fix. I just need some more of him in me. Have you ever worshipped for your own personal and emotional experience? None of these questions or these things that we seek out are wrong, but they are not enough. So, with those questions in mind, I'm going to introduce to you two very uncomfortable words. Not really introduce, you know these words, but I'm going to put them in context for you. The first word is liturgy. And that word freaks out a lot of people because you think of the Catholic Church or something. Um, the second word is orgy. And that really freaks us out because, well, we don't need to let our imaginations go wild. Liturgy and orgy. What is the point of these? So, in ancient times, um, pagans had a name for their worship. And the name was orgy. When pagans went to their temples... They participated in orgy. Now, that was not necessarily exactly what you think of when you think of a college party, okay? It's, it, our word has morphed a little bit. 
What was going on in a pagan orgy was that they were seeking out, it was a public event that produced private, ecstatic, and emotional experience. That's what they were seeking out. Everyone was there as an individual seeking out their needs. And they were seeking out a private experience. It was all about what the individual got out of going and giving their thing to the God and seeing what he can give them. Or what the experience led by the pagan priest would produce for them. And yeah, sometimes these were drunken affairs and there was, you know, with children in the room, you know what else happened too with their bodies. Um, and sometimes that did happen. And that's obviously where our word has morphed into the party scene. Um, now, what's interesting is that the early Christians did not just borrow that word when they got together to worship God. That would have been the natural thing to do. They have orgy. We have real orgy. It's so uncomfortable, isn't it? Thank God they did not choose that word. What they did is they, told, they took a completely different word to describe their gathering. They took a word that was used to describe the community doing things to help the community. That's what liturgy means. Liturgy is... It was a word used for, let's say, uh, the town of Twin Peaks needs a bridge. I don't know why we'd need a bridge, but we need a, we need a walkway down to Blue Jay. So the community gets together and they, they carve this pathway through the forest so that we can walk to Jensen's now. That would be liturgy, the community getting together to benefit the community. This is the word Christians chose for their Sunday worship gathering. They liturgized together. That word you can actually find in the Greek New Testament. Acts chapter 13, for example. They liturgized before the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10 describes Christ as our great high priest who ministers or who liturgizes before the Father for us. This was their word because they saw that we um, were not in this for ourselves. That we are not, uh, worship is not about us Worship is done by us. That's the reason for that word. Now, every church has a liturgy. You don't have to be Catholic to have a liturgy. A liturgy is simply how you worship. How are you accomplishing the community's work to benefit the community as the body of Christ? Well, sometimes it's a few songs and a sermon and you go home. Uh, Maybe a little meet and greet somewhere in the middle there or before or after. Uh, Sometimes it's a lot more complicated. And um, the thing we need to understand is that Everyone has one. The question is, does yours look more like an orgy or more like a liturgy? That's uncomfortable. So let me talk then about this. What changed? In the 1980s, uh, the megachurch happened. The megachurch brought mega change to worship. And this, I was thankful for reading scholars who've researched the history of these things because I was born in the midst of the megachurch movement. So in my upbringing and people like me and younger than me, um, we see all we know of as church, our concept of church is the megachurch model. We don't know anything before that because historic Christian, historic Christian worship basically got swallowed and trampled by the megachurch. The megachurch, you know, is basically a seeker-sensitive approach, and the goal is to make people feel familiar with church. So you step in, and it feels like you've been there before. Which, the problem with that is, in order to make secular people feel familiar in church, you have to de-churchify some things. And what that means is you bring in some of the world's liturgies into the church. 
So that when people walk in, in other words, it needs to feel like the mall. It needs to sound like a concert. It needs to have a Starbucks vibe. That's what you're going through. So literally what mega churches do is they borrow the liturgies of culture and bring these and harmonize them with and call it Christian worship. And that's how we get people to feel comfortable. Um, I... Uh, this is what happens, though. As, as churches seek to make people feel comfortable, if that's your... Obviously, we want that. But if that's your number one goal, you naturally have to shove out a lot of historic Christian worship. Just start with confession of sin. That is very uncomfortable. So what, it, what we do in mega churches? Everyone is shocked when they come here like, whoa, you guys confess your sins? What is this? This is what Christians did for 2,000 years until the 1980s, basically. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> um, it's, it's shocking because we, what we've done is we've lost. When we make church feel comfortable, we make church an event. And when church is an event, it no longer disciples the worshipers. It's no longer an arena. It's an auditorium. So here's a couple differences. Ancient worship is discipleship. Current wor- uh, mega church worship, I should say, is an event. Um, because worship as discipleship is formation. It means that God forms us. We come and he forms us. It's a top-down approach where we come before Almighty God and he's doing something to us. But worship as an event is expression. It's when we come before him and we basically offload all these feelings and let him know how much we love him. Well, that doesn't form you. It makes you feel good, but that doesn't actually do anything to you. Discipleship worship is God, as we talk to him, he's forming us. Worship as discipleship confesses sins, but worship as an event, as an event is about the affirmation of the self. So do we come to confess our sins or do we come to be affirmed about who we are? Discipleship worships, the sermons center on the theology of God. But event worship centers on the therapy of self. You won't have to exercise a lot of imagination if you just start sampling popular sermons in the world to see the difference. Um, Worship as discipleship is active communion. The people come and they have liturgy is the work of the community building the community. You come and you bring something to the community. Each and every one of you have the opportunity, if not at least to receive communion but you get to pray silently with the people or out loud. There's active communion, but in an event, there's passive consumption. You're you're basically being treated like a consumer. You love our style of church or our style or our preacher or our music. Um, and then you're left with the question, if you're a consumer, you're left with the question, what did you think about that today? How did you feel about it? Do you like it? This is where we've gone. And this is, this is, has been the primary, this has been eating at me for three years at least. And in the last year, um, I've been trying to lead you, lead us gently into saying, let's be a little more ancient and not ditch the contemporary either, but let's just reincorporate things that we kicked out of the church for who knows what. Because, well, because I'm, so we'll finish with this. Um, this will, this won't be a couple minutes, so maybe like ten more minutes. Um, I want to. I want us to now consider that worship does this stuff to us. 
And therefore, worship is not just random things we do. Like we get together, we say, we pray a psalm and then we thank the Lord and, and we receive communion. We hear a message and we sing songs and we have benedictions and we like whatever, like you just whatever order doesn't matter. No, it, it matters because worship should be a compilation of things that have an arc. And worship, we said, it's the in, it's the enacting of the gospel until we learn to embody it. So we confess sins at a certain time. The reason we don't, unlike the Catholic Church, which I don't agree with here, we don't confess sins at communion because communion is not about me groveling before God as dust and, oh, maybe I'll get a crumb for you. Communion is the Holy of Holies where we stand united with Christ because we confessed our sins way earlier. We're standing in his grace. We've been instructed by him and now we're coming forward to be united and live united with him in this week. There's a certain shape and structure and order to the way worship should work. And I want to talk about that narrative arc because we've now for a year been doing some more intentional liturgy. Remember this accidental liturgy where you kind of just do what everyone does or there's intentional liturgy, which we're doing. Um, why do we do what we do? We have a narrative arc and here's what it's based upon. We've structured our worship upon the tabernacle in the temple. And what I mean by that is if you were to be a worshiper and you were to walk up to the temple, there is a certain series of events and things that you would walk up to and buy on your way all the way. Just pretend you were allowed to go to the Holy of Holies. Here's a beautiful thing. Back in the temple, no one could get to the Holy of Holies. But the New Testament in Hebrews says that Christians go all the way to the Holy of Holies. So our worship's patterned from outside the gates all the way to inside the Holy of Holies. There's a flow and there's a structure here. Um, this is important to me because Hebrews 8 verse 5 tells us that when God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle, it was a reflection of the temple in heaven. There is a temple in heaven. Read Revelation. John sees the temple in heaven. And what God gave to Moses was that temple, the blueprint for that temple. Here, Moses, replicate this on earth. So the patterns of the temple are heavenly. And this is what we're after. We're after letting the Holy Spirit, our worship leader, lead us from who we are as mere mortals, earthly people, awash in worldliness and demonic deception. And we are being led by the Holy Spirit in this holy ascension to the Holy of Holies at the throne of God himself. So, the temple is basically this. You have... Yeah, this way for you. Okay. You have um, the outer courts. You're coming up to the gate, right? You're out in the wilderness or in Israel, whatever. And you come up to the gates and then you enter the gates. How do you enter the gates of God? Thanksgiving. And his courts of praise. Yeah, there's a certain way to enter. You don't just, yeah, 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 you're jabbering and gossiping as you walk in. And no, actually in the temple, at the southern steps where most of Israel entered, the steps were staggered. You can see this today because the southern steps that Jesus walked on still exist. And there's a long stair, a short stair, a long and a short. Why? Well, one of my students in high school once joked, oh, so that drunk people couldn't get up there. And actually, <laughs> there was actually an interesting point to that. Um, the idea was that you have to watch your feet as you approach the presence of God's temple. 
you enter a certain way. You got the outer courts. So you enter in, you're in the outer courts. There's the altar. There's a bronze. So you go, you bring your animal up to the altar, right? And you, you cut the animal up and all that stuff. And there's all this gory stuff. And then there's the bronze laver where you wash yourself off from all the gore. And then there's the holy place. So you're coming into the courts. This is outside. This is where the sacrifices happen. You pass that. You've wa- washed off of the water. Then there's the, there's the temple building. That's called the holy place. And you enter into that. Only priests could go in there. But guess what? We are the royal priesthood. We get to enter this. And so when you go in, on your left side, oh, it's actually mimic here. On your left side is the lampstand. Um, and um, on your right side was the table of showbread. And in the center was, and this is kind of what I represent as we pray, the center was the altar of incense where the priest would intercede for Israel. And so you have those three things in the holy place. And then, of course, behind all of that, you then get to the Holy of Holies, which is separated by a veil. And this, no one goes in there except the high priest on the Day of Atonement. But Hebrews says, Hebrews tells us that when Christ's body was torn open, so when we when we break open the bread, it said that that was the tearing of the veil. That we get into the Holy of Holies through the broken body of Christ. So... The flow, therefore, is outer courts, holy place, holy of holies. Um, in the outer courts, you're seeking purgation. That's the elimination of sin, of the world, of filth. In the holy place, you get illumination, where you have the light. We have the scripture teachings. And then in the holy of holies, you have unification. So we go through purgation, illumination, unification. This is our narrative arc this is the gospel story we're sinners who have been cleansed and now we're seeking the light of the spirit and walking in his light and this leads us to unification in christ where we're walking perfectly with him through our lives okay so permit me then to walk you guys a little bit through what exactly how exactly we do that because here's what i've learned If we don't know why we worship, then our worship becomes dry. Without a why, it's dry. So I step into, some people will step into like say a Catholic or an Orthodox church or an Anglican church. And they'd be like, oh my gosh, this is so dead. Um, Or a Catholic, like at least when I visit a Catholic church, I feel like a lot of the people around me just don't know what's going on. They're just enduring it. They're just enduring, right? It's because they don't know what's happening. They don't know why they're doing what they're doing. They just, this is what I've always done. But if we know why we do what we do, it never gets dry. It's it's full of life. So here's what we do. We enter by singing as we gather. As we gather, may your spirit. This gathering is seems a no-brainer. We're all getting together. But we have to realize we've come from a variety of places with a variety of different levels of emotion or mental space. And when we come together, we name the fact that we're gathering because we're gathering for a single purpose, that the Spirit would work within us, that we will be led by the Spirit to be one in the body of Christ. We're no longer individuals. We gather as a body. Then we stand. Why do we stand? Well, if um, somebody really important walked in here, usually what you do is you stand because it's sense, it, it's what we do when we sense anticipation. Something's gonna happen. We come before God and we don't sit on our rumps saying, excite me. <laughs> 
We, when we enter his gates, we stand because we anticipate that he is here and he is going to do something in our lives tonight. It's anticipation. It's your first act of worship. So we stand in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Because to me, in this culture, it is so important we name our God. Nobody, no higher power, no, I'm spiritual but not religious, no, I'm like this quasi, like I mix all the religions together, kind of movement that's out there. None of this names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As soon as you name the triune God, you are in a specific branch of the world. It's called Christianity. And even many Christians don't even understand or affirm the Trinity. We affirm that our God is a eternal fellowship, and he's inviting us into his eternal fellowship. We name it right away, because we're not being vague about why we're here. And then we say, in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us stand for this time for the Lord to act. Thank you. Uh, that comes from Psalm 119, verse 126. Why are we here? We're not here because I got something to do. And trust me, you're not here because I have something to say. We're here because it's time for God to act. And this puts in perspective, God acts first, always. Worship is because God has appeared. God has done something. God has called us, and we respond. We are not pagans, like in the Elijah chapter, jumping up on the altars, trying to get Baal to notice them. God is here. It's time for him to act. Are you ready? So then we bless him. Um, we bless him. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. We use Ephesians 1, 3 right now because it's good for the season, but um, it changes sometimes. And we bless him because blessing is appropriate before we do our requesting, isn't it? Yes. So we bless him. And then we, we pray the Beatitudes because the Beatitudes remind us of where we're headed. This is our goal. The kingdom of God looks like this. And then arise, O Lord, because this is warfare. This is God's space. Arise, O Lord, your foes be scattered. Okay, then we end, that's all of our entrance. That takes all about four minutes. I've always timed it. It's about four minutes. Then we start singing. So we enter his courts of praise. That is the call to worship. We start with, uh, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Where did that come from? That's Psalm 134. Psalm 134 is a unique psalm because, well, one, it's short, and two, I heard a melody that's so singable, so we do it, and three, it's a night psalm, and that's what we are, a night church, Um, but also, Psalm 134 is the end of the Psalms of Ascent. They start in 120, where the psalmist says, Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, dwell among the tents of Kedar. He yearns to be out of a godless place and with God's people, but he's not there yet. And then the psalms of ascent take us gradually upward until the climax is 134, where you're standing in the courts of the Lord. Come bless the Lord, because we're here, we're standing there. So we've made, we're, we're entering, we're going forward to that. And then we sing. Also, that psalm, by the way, should just anticipate in your soul. We're singing, come bless the Lord. It's time to sing. Oh, my soul, look up to him. Um, then we confess our sins, because then you come to the altar. The altar is where we confess our sins. We have to, spiritually speaking, cut ourselves open. We have to let him see. So we have this moment of silence where we allow the Lord to examine us. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the tax collector's prayer in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18. We pray Psalm 51 because that's David's great prayer of confession. I have not found a confession prayer better than that. Trust me, I know a lot. 
<laughs> of them. Um, I may or may not know a lot of stuff, but I, I do know a lot of confession prayers. And Psalm 51 just gets to the heart. We pray parts of it because Psalm 51 is a lot longer. We pray parts of it. Then we stand after that. Why do we stand? Because when we kneel in confession, whether it's in our hearts or physically, when we kneel in confession, we don't stay there. Christ says, it's all right, my child. And he picks us up and we stand. We are united with him. And so we stand. Um, we light the candle usually right after that because, and a woman always lights it. Have you noticed that? I've never asked a man to light it. There's two times a year I light the candle. Um, yeah, two times a year. And that's because there's a theological symbol of it. But um, it's always the woman because it's through Mary, it's through woman, through the seed of the woman that light has come to the world. And it reminds us that the Spirit is upon us. And it reminds us that scripture, which we're about to get to, because we're now in the holy place, where where the lampstand is, that scripture is about to be read. And scripture is our light for our feet and a light to our path. So then we go to scripture. And usually the woman who lights a candle, it's convenient, leads a psalm. But also I like, it doesn't have to be this way. There's nothing in the Bible. But I also often like having a woman lead the psalm because um, what psalms are is it's the bride's response to the husband. Um, God spoke in the first five books of the Bible. The Psalms are organized in five books because the Jews recognize that they were responding to his word. That's what the Psalms were. So we get this call and response where one line is said, and you'll notice in the Psalms, usually the response is very similar to the line before it. Because this is the bride and the husband dialoguing. That's how the songs are arranged. And we get to practice the dialogue between Christ and his church before between bride and husband. Then we come to the table of showbread, and this is um, this is the sermon, our bread of life. This is where we get our nourishment. So I give you guys a sermon. Um, we then we then um, after the sermon we pray. We pray for the world, right? Because now we're at the altar of incense, and this is what high priests. This is what the priests did. This is what the royal priesthood does. Is we pray for people. And we intercede for the world. So we respond to God's word. One in our prayers. Thank you for what you taught us. Help us to do this. We then look outward and pray for the world. We pray for the needs here, the needs beyond us, and then we. Um, I want us to start getting better at if the Lord leads you so to do. We also get to exhort the family together during this time. God's moved my heart during the service so far, and I want to say this, or he's putting this on my heart. We close with the Lord's Prayer, standing, holding hands, because this is the seal of our unity. And if we are not ready to be in union with each other, we will not be in union with God. It's very clear. We do not forgive the sins of others, neither are our sins forgiven us. The um, church is always taught, based on Jesus' words, if you have hatred in your heart for your brother, Leave your gift at the altar and go reconcile first. We check ourselves before this moment. Are we one or are we not? And if we're not, you might need to not receive communion for a week until your heart's right. Or better yet, while we're praying, go and deal with the person. Go make a phone call. Go to the other side of the aisle and talk to them. Because usually you don't sit to the person you hate. But <laughs> Go and reconcile. This is what the family of God does. So then we enter the Holy of Holies. We partake in the bread and the cup because um, this is the Ark of the Covenant. 
Remember, we break the bread because that's the tearing of the veil. We pray Psalm 106 because it's a Thanksgiving Psalm. We pray, sometimes we pray Psalm 23 because it talks about God leading us to his table. It takes us through the valley of the shadow and up back to the table. Um, then we start moving toward our closing because we're about to return to the world. So we, we prepare to dismiss ourselves. We have been doing that with the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. This is preparing us to now go. Because we've received you, let us take you back into the world. And then we have announcements, because this is family table talk. It's part of worship, knowing what's going on, how we can all participate. And then we close with a benediction from Numbers 6, verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. Let his face shed up, slide upon you, and so forth. Um, we go in the blessing of God to be the blessing of God. That's the idea of closing with the benediction. So brothers and sisters, say all that to show us that we get to enact the gospel and its shape, and this progression We get to do this with our bodies, with our hearts, with our souls, with our emotions, week in and week out, so that we can, we're entering the arena this way. We're training for war so that when we go into the world, we can continue to embody the gospel, and that the sanctuaries around us will be trampled underneath the feet of God's people, because we have a bigger power in us. We have the Holy Spirit. So this is our arena. It is the battleground for spiritual warfare, and it trains us to embody the gospel. Amen? Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen.